This is Airing Pain, a programme brought to you by Pain Concern, the UK charity providing information and support for those of us living with pain and for healthcare professionals. I'm Paul Evans, and this is the first in a series of programmes about Complex Regional Pain Syndrome, or CRPS. It's funded by a grant from the RS Macdonald Charitable Trust. If you imagine toothache and the kind of, like a really bad abscess or something in your tooth, and the sort of intensity of that kind of pain, if you can imagine that in your whole arm, day and night, for the foreseeable future, that's, that's the kind of pain that you'll get with CRPS. It ranges from being incredibly hot to freezing cold, to feeling as though somebody's pouring boiling water over your skin and then holding it in a draft, holding your burnt hand in a draft. So it's, it's very complicated, the kind of pains that you get with it. There are layers of pain as well. You will get deep pains in your bones, in your muscles, in your tendons, and then you'll have this pain on your skin. I kept going back to the hospital and saying, my cast is too tight, you know, I'm in agony, my cast is too tight, because that's what it felt like. And my hand was very swollen. But, you know, people kept looking at it and saying, no, it's fine, you know, it's fine. And I was thinking, it can't be fine, you know, everybody else is sitting around here with casts on and they're not crying, you know, and I, I was in agony. That's an extract from an earlier edition of Airing Pain, number 23 to be exact, in which Sunny Boshoff, author of CRPS Awareness, Moving Against Pain, talks about living with complex regional pain syndrome. It's a condition in which a person experiences persistent, severe and debilitating pain. Although most cases are triggered by an injury, the resulting pain is much more severe and longer-lasting than that original pain. The pain is usually confined to one limb, but it can sometimes spread to other parts of the body. The skin of the affected body part can become so sensitive that just a slight touch, bump or even a change in temperature can provoke intense pain. One of the world's leading authorities on CRPS is Professor Frank Berkline. He's head of Peripheral Nerve Disorders and Pain Research and Treatment at the Department of Neurology, University Medical Centre in Mainz in Germany, and is the leading author of the German Guidelines for CRPS Diagnosis and Treatment. Complex Regional Pain Disorder is just a denomination which is uh, created because uh, at that time when it was invented, the name, the pathophysiology of complex regional pain syndrome was farly unknown. In the meanwhile, we know a little bit more. So complex is really means that the symptomatology is complex, so the signs which you can which can be seen in patients is complex for instance, if you have a nerve lesion, then you have a pain and you have numbness in the nerve innervation territory. But in CAPS, you have a limb which is hot. In the other patients, it's cold. Sometimes it's sweaty, sometimes it's not. So it's a complex uh, clinical sign. Nevertheless, it's regional because it's uh, not confined to a nerve territory or radicular innervation territory. And it's not all over the body. It's confined to a limb. Sometimes it might be spreading to the other side and uh, pain is clear and syndrome means that it is not a, a clear-cut disorder, it's a, it's a bouquet of symptoms and signs which characterize this syndrome. So it's not a disease, it's a syndrome. So 
complex, yes. The regional, where does it affect people? In the distal parts of the limbs, the feet or the hands. All other parts, I would say, it doesn't exist. Probably there's one exception, this is uh, the knee. But I would be very uh, cautious to call pain in the hip complex regional pain syndrome or in the ear or the elbow or the, or the, the shoulder or something like that. Is it confined just to adults? No, it's, it, it happens in children, it happens in adults, but the typical CRPS patient is a middle-aged woman shortly after the menopause. And this might have something to do with uh, inflammation regulation because women are more prone to develop inflammatory autoimmune diseases and this is in particular true after the sexual hormones went down because these are steroid hormones. You might have, have a trait, we still do not know what it is, but it could be that some patients are simply prone to get it. And we have to identify and acknowledge it early in order to help them. Is that an issue as well, that people can't identify it? Yes, people ignore it, I would say. If there's a surgery, then the surgeons sometimes got the impression that they have done something wrong, but they did not. So this is what has been told to the physicians, that, that nobody is guilty if, if there's a CRPS coming up. Yeah, it's a trait. It, it can happen. So what causes it? This is the question is, uh, could fill the whole evening, I would say. Usually it starts with a post-traumatic inflammation. And this means that everybody of us gets an inflammation in the limb if he has a trauma or she. And usually this inflammation is shut down by our body within a certain time frame. It depends on the kind of, of trauma you, you experience and so on. And in these patients, the, the shutting down of the inflammation is delayed or it is ineffective, so it is incomplete. And this means that you have a permanent inflammation going on in your limb. And this means that you have pain which is related to the inflammation. This means particularly this movement-related pain. And if you have a very fine orchestrated tool like a hand and you do not use it, and you have a strong inflammation going on, then you will have a loss of function. And as long as you lose your function, the representation of your hand in your brain becomes smaller and smaller because you must know that so there's so many information which has been processed which comes from the hands. And uh, if this information is missing or is distorted by pain or something like that, then this has consequences. The other way around, so if you train a lot, you learn writing. If you have pain and you cannot move your, your hands or fingers intentionally anymore, you lose your abilities. I think you said the inflammation stays. Yes. So is it something you can see? Yeah, you can see it. It's very often it's a tremendous edema and it's a skin temperature difference and you can feel the sweating and sweating also is a consequence of inflammation we know we have learned in the meanwhile yes and the skin color is different so the definition of inflammation is swelling it's warming color the, the red color and it's loss of function and it's pain these are the five cardinal symptoms of inflammation and exactly these symptoms occur in CRPS. So is it that the original injury has gone but somehow the repair process, if you like, uh, yeah, is, is, not, is, is not turned off. Yeah, this, exactly this is it. 
in the initial phase. And after that, all these consequences this, uh, uh, about losing the ability to use the hand and contractures and rearranging the brain, all these consequences take place the longer the pain and the inflammation persists. After a certain time frame, I cannot tell you exactly when, but approximately I would say six months. After that, that the inflammation becomes less and less important, but the brain takes over and causes the symptoms which uh, are then uh, present there for its ex- the movement disorder and the numbness and the pain. What's the process then for you to manage these people? Yeah, to keep them going, nevertheless. So I have to convince them that it is uh, important to move the limb. I can give you an example. If you have uh, children with CRPS, it looks exactly the same, exactly the same. And you can treat them with drugs and so on, it does not work. But if you convince them to move the limbs because there is something which is at the end of the tunnel, for instance. I, sometimes I make negotiations with the parents so that there's a pet waiting if they are managed to use their, their right hand for writing anymore. Then you cannot imagine how intense these children work in order to use the limp anymore. And after half a year or nine months, CRPS has gone away. I have some children which really go back to competitional uh, sports and uh, do not have any problems. What's the outlook for most people who have CRPS? Okay, I think I would say two-thirds improve. Improve or? Improve. The least get very pain-free, only very rare that people get pain-free. You cannot answer this question very easily because if I'm retired and I have some problems with my left hands, so and I try to improve it and to reduce the pain. So And then the patient says, okay, I can cope with that because I do not have problem to rest my, my left hand for, for half an hour if I have too much pain while using it. So, But if you are a hammersmith and your right hand is affected, then it could be a, a very different situation, I would say. Then probably you lose your occupation. So, And this is, makes a difference. Yeah. So if I'm able at a, working in an office and I can cope with the symptoms, so I can cope with the pain, then it's not uncommon that the patients go back to work and they do not need any drugs or something like that in the long run. And most of them have some kind of loss of function, like uh, yeah, contractures or so, but this usually they are not so important. So they, of course, they cannot deliver the power which they have been before, but I think this is in a lot of diseases. So if you have a surgery on your gut or something like that, you have to acknowledge that you cannot eat anything anymore, and the same with the CRPS. But this has something to do with coping and something to do with uh, adjustment to the loss of function. And for some people it's easy, for the other people it's simply not possible. And for those in which it is not possible, then they suffer hard and the others say, okay, I can accept that I have some loss of function, but this will not affect my life. So I would guess the treatment, as in most chronic pain conditions, mm-hmm. the psychological treatment is, is important. Also important, yes, absolutely. We have pharmacological treatment and we need psychological treatment. So, as Professor Frank Birkland's experience backs up, 
pain is not a fixed reality. This was the headline for a talk given by Professor Candy McCabe. She's the clinical lead for the Complex Regional Pain Syndrome Service at the Royal United Hospitals in Bath, and I'll be exploring that service in the next edition of Airing Pain. Professor McCabe's research interests lie in the mechanisms and treatments for chronic pain. All of our treatment guidelines, British Pain Society treatment guidelines for chronic pain, for pain management, is focused around helping people to live with pain and helping them to function despite their pain. We of course have medications, we have spinal cord stimulators, we have fantastic pain management programmes, but we know that medication and spinal cord interventions and other neuromodulation will perhaps reduce the pain a little bit, take the edge of it so that people are less distracted by it, less disabled by it and can get on with their lives. We also know that the chronic pain management programmes are excellent about helping people to live life with their pain and often in pain management we talk about trying to walk with pain beside you rather than in front of you and encompassing you. And our outcome measures for chronic pain programmes tend to be about have we improved function, have we improved quality of life, have we improved people's self-management skills and their ability to cope, their mood, their anxiety, all of which are really, really important. But when I talk to patients in clinic and I say, so what are your goals for treatment? The very first thing they say is, I want you to get rid of the pain. They don't say, I want my function better, I want you know, to reduce the pain a little bit. Their top thing is, I want this pain to go. And at the moment in chronic pain, we hedge that a little bit. And we say, well, we can't get rid of the pain, but we're going to give you ways that you can cope with it. So that's a barrier in itself. When patients come to you, cure or self-manage, well, obviously, we want a cure. And the pain management techniques, I mean, do reduce pain, but not cure. I think that's a fair comment. I think it would be a brave clinician who said, come on our programme and we'll cure you of your chronic pain. That isn't the message we give. That isn't what we're usually able to achieve. So we're already having to not quite do what our patients really want us to do. And perhaps we can just change that perception a little bit. How? There's been a lot of... uh, publications in the non-pain field about how our bodies operate and uh, traditionally we always used to think that our bodies sit there as receptive organs that we wait for the environment to come to us and then we interact with that environment and that we would learn through those interactions. So uh, as a child, you would learn that how to walk and how to mimic things by interacting with that world. And the assumption was always that it was very much that we were response organs, that we did whatever happened to us. But over the years, that's changed. And we now know that actually we see life and interact with life much more about how our bodies perceive that world around us rather than what may actually be there. So that's because we run on hypotheses. We run on assumptions about what the environment will be like. So if I can give you a a simple example, that if you were walking into a hotel lobby, 
you would have a rough idea about what to expect there because you will have been perhaps not in exactly that hotel but you'll have been in other hotel lobbies and you'll know roughly what a reception desk should look like and you'll head that way. So your behaviour in that new setting is very much influenced by your past experience and you will also on the sort of the, the very small level know that if you're going to walk on a carpet you would fully expect that that will be a softer sensation than if you're walking on hard floor. And so the muscles and the sensory networks in order to interpret that information will already be ready to accept that information before you even do that action. So if, for example, you walked on a carpet that you were sure was going to be a soft pile, then you would be ready for the relevant muscles to be able to sink, for your feet to sink into that carpet. And also if you were there in bare feet, your, your sensory system would be ready to feel that. But if, oh, by some clever trickery, that carpet wasn't soft pile, actually it was hard or perhaps even painful, the first reaction is surprise. It isn't what you expected. And therefore, you have to change your expectations. So what we think happens in pain is that for those where the pain persists, you start to get set in a network. And there's an expression in neurology that what fires together, wires together. So if something has previously been working in that way, then it will continue to work in that way because that's the quickest route. So if I gave you an analogy of a river, so you start off and if there was just a little trickle of water going across the floor, that first trickle has to just go where the floor takes it, where the natural dips and rises in that floor go. But if that water ran for the next 20 years, actually the floor would be carved out in the route where that water had been. And the quickest way for the water to travel is down that channel. That means that all the other bit of floor in that room is no longer accessed. And there are wastelands of potential sources of information or floor space in this scenario, which are still there, but we don't use. If I have pain, the expectancy is that I will do something to follow that path that I know that I've been before. Does that make sense? Absolutely. So, so your brain will be wired to if it's painful to move your arm, your brain will expect that no matter what you do with that arm, it will be painful. And because you know that you can't perhaps lift a cup or anything, then your brain will know that actually you'll be weaker doing that, that it isn't possible, that you'll be clumsy. But also, of course, that all comes with emotional consequences. So associated with that pattern of behaviour is a level of perhaps anxiety about will I drop something, or depression even, just frustration. So you get set in these pathways, but equally perhaps in our patients who have neuropathic pain, where if you touch the painful area, it's intensely painful and they can only feel pain. So they've stopped feeling light touch, vibration, pressure, they just feel pain. So what the analogy is, is that the information sitting on that riverbanks is all that lost information. And in order to change the course of a river, it takes a huge amount of work. So what we are suggesting is that actually if we get people to think much more about 
what their, where their limb is in space, what the normal sensations would be if they were doing something. So let's go back to the example if you've got a really painful arm. What we want to do is help people to relearn what normal sensation feels like. So we would work with them by asking them questions on the unaffected arm and saying, so how does this touch feel? How do you know it feels like that? Where on your arm am I touching you? Whereabouts is your elbow or your hand in relation to that? We learn by questioning. We learn by having to use our brains to consider information and come up with responses. Once you've relearned that skill, which isn't something we would naturally do. As children, we've probably explored that greatly, or, you know, know about different sensations. But as adults, we have to relearn what those textures are and those sensations are. Then move to the affected side and say, OK, before I touch you, I want you to now be aware that I'm going to touch you. You should feel the same sensation you did before. Try and find that information. Try and access that information underneath the pain because it's there try and find it and it's really extraordinary how people can suddenly find that information that they thought was lost to them and lo and behold you start to shift the focus away from pain into more normal sensations the learned sensations if you like holding a cup of tea if you have a bad hand well what i would do if i had a bad hand and i found holding a cup of tea painful I just use my other hand. Yes, But yes. surely that's, a, that's the sensible thing to Completely. do. Because we're animals, we have to keep ourselves safe. So all of our adaptations are about minimising risk to ourselves. Most sensible thing is to use the hand that works. But that then means that you effectively have lost a limb. So in our new therapies, we would say, OK, so what we want you to do is to, to hold that handle. Now really be aware of how do you know you're holding the handle? What's the temperature of that handle? What's the shape of that handle? Rather than thinking, what's my level of pain? How does it? So it's finding all that other sensory and proprioceptive information that is normally lost to us and masked by the pain. And by working in that manner, and as you can imagine, it's a slow process, but patients absolutely understand it. And usually within a week of having really directed questions by the therapist, they, they start to get it and say, actually, now I'm going to look for those pleasant sensations with those pleasant memories, rather than when I go to do something looking for pain. So if pain starts to come back, say, actually, no, I want to go and find those nice sensations, those nice memories again. And you're effectively finding the information sitting on the riverbanks. I still find it a very difficult concept to get hold of. I mean, how do you persuade somebody with chronic pain that they can rethink everything they've done since they've had the chronic pain? In the first instance, we'd get people to think back to a memory associated with that painful part before the pain started. So that could be that if you've got chronic back pain, actually remembering how lovely it felt having your back massaged with sun lotion while you were lying on a warm beach. And so we want people to go back to that point. We know that chronic pain involves your emotional, your, your behavioural, your sensory systems. So we have to use all of those systems to change it. So if you're going to remember having 
massage on the top of your back. First of all, you'd like the therapist to put their hand on the non-painful side, okay, so now can you remember how that felt? Tell me, you know, what the sensation was like. What were the sounds, the smells of that time? How many fingers am I touching you with now? Can you find that information? Now I'm going to move my hand to the other side. I want you again, before I put my hand there, to think back to those lovely memories. Remember how it felt, that, you know, the sun, the seagulls. Now I'm putting my hand on there. Tell me again, how many fingers have I got? How does that feel? And it's extraordinary how going back and finding that other associated information, you can start to un unwrap all those other memories. So does the pain go, or just the way you're perceiving it? Well, uh, really excitingly, pain seems to go. So particularly our patients with complex regional pain syndrome, where we know we really cannot touch their painful limb. But we found that people can start to tolerate non-painful touch while they are thinking about the other sensations, such as, you know, what direction is a sponge being laid in? How many fingers have I got? And they say, you know, I never felt pain at all. And there's a certain concern that, gosh, did I make all this up? You know, how is it that I've had pain for so long and something so simple can have made that pain free? And, uh, and interestingly, that seems to be more of a problem. You know, pain isn't anything that anybody would wish upon themselves or, or try and create. It's simply a, it's a, a miswiring. A, a, and really all we're trying to do is get the brain back to an expectation, a normal expectation. Some of it sounds a little like visualisation. That certainly works, yes. but it's temporary. Yes, yes. And uh, equally, sometimes in uh, some particular pain approaches, like graded exposure, we would say, OK, you just need to do all those actions and just ignore the pain. And some people can do that, but they can't do it for very long. It's really difficult to ignore that. Visualisation can take you so, so far, but visualisation is quite a, a passive exercise. Nobody's asking you particularly, OK, so how high were the waves that day? Or, you know, how gritty was the sand at that point? You're not having to really draw on past experience and answer questions. And, you know, we just know that learning is all about having to respond to questions and assimilate information and respond. It's called neurocognitive approach. You need that level of inquiry within it and to have it multifaceted, really. So visualisation, absolutely. Direct touch, stimulus, so rehearsal of how that felt, real-life experience of how that was. So it's, it's a package of stuff. So I'm not saying ditch pain management at all. I'm saying add this in to all the great stuff we already have. Professor Candy McCabe. I'll just remind you that whilst we in Pain Concern believe the information and opinions on airing pain are accurate and sound based on the best judgments available, you should always consult your health professional on any matter relating to your health and well-being. He or she is the only person who knows you, your circumstances and therefore the appropriate action to take on your behalf. Don't forget that you can download all editions and transcripts of airing pain from Pain Concern's website which is painconcern.org.uk. There's also information on how to order Pain Concerns magazine, Pain Matters. Now, we at Pain Concern need your help. Like all charities, Pain Concern relies on the generosity of individuals and funding bodies to keep us going. Don't worry, I'm not going to ask you to make a donation, although we'd never turn it down on our Just Giving page. But in order to carry on making these programmes, we really need to know that what we're doing 
is of benefit to people living with chronic pain, your family members and supporters, and I can't emphasise too much how important it is that we also get feedback from healthcare professionals on how these programmes help you help your patients. So do please go onto the Pain Concern website and click on the feedback button to take part in our short survey. Have your say because without your views we won't know what we're doing well and what needs improvement. Now, back to complex regional pain syndrome and this psychological therapy Professor Candy McCabe's been working on and enthusing about. And the big question for those who have CRPS, that therapy, where and when can I get it? Well, we're only very much in the pilot stages and we have been hugely influenced and informed by a group in Italy who are based at Santorzo and they use something called the Perfetti technique which was perfected by Carlos Perfetti and he uh, had written up this proposal that actually there is, we just need to relearn this information. But alongside Carlos Buffetti, many others have been working in a very similar area. And we ourselves have been using visual illusions to trick the brain to go back to seeing normal. And this really just brings together lots of people's work. And this is by no means something that you know, we ourselves have come up with. It's, it's very much that we're drawing on the other experience and other skills of folk to try and apply it in a very practical way to our patients with chronic pain. So we're just starting out on this journey. Um, it's still very experimental, but it intuitively feels the right thing to do. Thank you very much indeed. It's really exciting, really exciting. <laughs>